Hi, this is Mark Brady. I'm the pastor at Anchor Faith Church in Valdosta, Georgia. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast today. We believe it will bless you and minister to you. I get ready to receive a word from God. In Matthew chapter 25 and verse 14, going on through the rest of this chapter, uh, Jesus gives a parable, one of my favorite passages, my favorite stories, parables in the Bible is the parable of the talents. And it describes and shows, you know, last week I ministered on a renewed commitment. And so I'm going to kind of stay in this vein of kingdom discipleship, this value of following and adhering to the word of the Lord. If we're talking about a restoration, if we're talking about an alignment, if we're talking about revival in these last days, it's going to come with an understanding that more and more I'm beginning to learn what God is looking for me to believe him for in my life is not always the remarkable, the sensational, the things that stand out, those one-off moments where God just does something extraordinary, which he will do. But many times what he's looking for from you and I is a life of discipleship, a disciplined consistency, a, a, a disciplined consistency, dedication, uh, endurance to the end. Um, it's just this faithful commitment to do and see the miracles even in the mundane, to see the miracles even in the small to see the daily opportunities where God is trying to show himself mighty in our lives. And a lot of times when we think about revival and we think about a move of God, we think about what God is doing in the last days, man, we're we're thinking about those big moments, the moments that make the history books, the moments that we learn about and read about, write about, uh, begin to rehash over and over. But it's the life of a disciple It's the life of a disciplined believer that I believe paves the way and prepares the way for such a move of God. You can go back and and read about really any revival, uh, any revivalist or any move of God. And if you go back far enough and you get past the services that went to midnight and you get past the the baptisms that were taking place on a regular basis and the healings and the miracles and the nightly wonders and if you go past that you'll find a man or a woman that remained dedicated to the small things you'll find a man or a woman that was disciplined to be in prayer disciplined to adhere to the word of god disciplined to do Not always the sensational and the extraordinary, but the small and the simple. And it's out of that gets birthed this opportunity where hearts are turned toward the Lord, where we can see the extraordinary and where we can see the sensational. But I I truly believe you and I, we don't need to be moved by the extraordinary, the miraculous and the sensational. I thank God for those things. But if you remember, the miracles and the signs and the wonders were showing up in the wilderness. But when we get to the promised land, there's an expectation to live a little differently. That I don't don't always need God, uh, you know, pouring water out of a rock. 
I can believe God that he can use me to be a part of the plan. And see, when I'm always looking at the sensational and the extraordinary, I quickly begin to eliminate and limit my capacity and my involvement. And in these last days, we're going to find the church more engaged and more involved than ever before. Now, it's not going to become, uh, it's not going to happen because of us, but I am going to make sure it doesn't happen in spite of us. I don't want God bringing water out of a rock in spite of. You remember Moses disobeyed God and still got water out of a rock. Sometimes if we're not careful, we'll put more stock in the miracle than we will a life of dedicated obedience. We'll put more stock in the extraordinary, pour more value and weight on the sea that parted, and we end up grumbling and complaining on the other side of it. Y'all with me? You okay? I'm not denying miracles, signs, and wonders. They're going to happen, but it's not going to change my position. It's not going to change my stance. It's not going to change my amount of dedication. I'm not in this as long as God does something. I'm saying, God, I'm going to be a part of whatever role you have me play. I was uh, listening to a testimony by someone He was talking about another minister that there was this big revival, this big move of God, and they wrote this article about it. And he was one of the key components, this minister was, of of this revival. And it's starting, and they wrote this big article, and, and he was never mentioned in the article, not once. He was, his name was never mentioned as being a big component or the reason why this thing took off or what he did. Because this is what we do is we put value on the extraordinary, but then the simple, the small, the dedicated, the disciplined steps, they get overlooked. I'm okay with being overlooked if it means God's on display. And God corrected this minister and he said, but my name was. Are you more concerned about your name being in the article than my name? Because my name was glorified. My name was lifted up. My name was promoted. My name was exalted. Every miracle, every sign, every wonder, every healing, every restored marriage, every life that was touched is a, is a sign of glory to the King of Kings and to the Lord of Lords. And if my name never gets put in there, that's completely fine. Because I know the disciplined steps that I took to see this thing take place. And in Matthew chapter 25, that's really what Jesus is addressing. In verse 14, it says, again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated. Remember that these stories always point back to a kingdom. They always point back to God's original plan, God's original intent, God's original agenda. And that was to bring a kingdom to the earth. That was to bring his government to this planet, and that we would align once again with the values of heaven. The kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip, and he called together his servants and entrusted his money to them while he was gone. The first thing we've got to understand is that God has entrusted us, all of us, with something while he's away. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm thankful for the return of Christ. I'm thankful that he's going to return. But countless times, repeatedly, we see that that's not to be our emphasis or our focus. There's a reason why he said, only I know. 
when I'm sending my son. Not even Jesus knows. There's a reason why he hasn't clued us in or let us in on the exact moment he's coming back to the clouds and rapturing his church back. There's a reason why, because our focus and our intent is supposed is to be on this earth, not on heaven. Not that I'm looking at these things, but I look at these things from a heavenly perspective. I look at the earth from above. Set your minds on things above, not on the things below. But we have, we have taken that verse to, 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 to allow us, excuse us to lift our focus off of this planet and only focus on heaven. When he, that's not what he meant. He meant for us to view the earth through the lens of heaven, through the lens of his kingdom, through the lens of what's possible, through the lens of what God is really up to. I'm telling you right now, God is still interested, very interested in what is happening in the earth today. Very interested. In fact, he's so interested that he left his body, the church, in the earth to be the very effectual change in the earth that we would be the ones that alter the reality of what this earth looks like. That's why you and I exist, is to show people heaven to show people what God's perspectives look like, to show people what God's plans look like, what he's up to, what his, what his love looks like, what his hope looks like, what his joy looks like, what faith in God looks like. So he's entrusted something to us while he's gone. It says that he gave five, pa- five bags of silver to one, two bags of silver to another, and one bag of silver to the last, dividing in proportion to their abilities. In proportion to their abilities, meaning they weren't given more than what they could had already proven they could handle. What they had already proven that they could work with. Whatever you have at your disposal, whatever you've been given, whatever capacity you have right now, you have proven to the Lord in some way, shape, or form that that is what you can be responsible with. We've said this before, but responsibility is the reward for maturity. Responsibility is the reward for the maturity. We have, we have got to change our perspective on tests and trials in the church. We've got to get heaven's view of tests and trials because we tend to look at tests and trials as a negative thing. We think of tests more in the viewpoint of something that is trying to stop us when God views tests and trials as something that would advance us. Think about it. Any any age level, any grade level in school, you have to test to prove that you have gained, you've been entrusted with, you've received, you have the capacity to go from one level to the next. And the testing isn't designed to keep you in fifth grade. The testing is designed to get you to sixth grade. Can my teachers testify? Can I get a big amen? My math teacher down here is like, I want these kids out of my class. I do not want to see you two years in a row. But sometimes God sees us two years in a row. 
taking tests on the same level that we ought to have already tested out of. Come on. Something that he put in our life, we have viewed as something that's restraining us when he's saying, no, 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 this is how I'm going to get you to kick the devil's teeth in and to prove you're ready to move on to the next thing. We got to get to a place where we start welcoming. Get comfortable in crisis. Get comfortable in the test. Get comfortable because the testing, uh, if you remember over in Romans chapter 12, verse one, it says this is how we will, uh, or Romans 12, verse two, how we will prove that which is good, acceptable, and pleasing. We saw that last week. Well, that word prove is actually the word allow. That we will allow. And it refers to this viewpoint of the tests come to prove what's inside of you. Remember, Jesus, when he came up out of the water, he was baptized uh, in the water. He was baptized by the Holy Spirit that uh, came down, descended upon him like a dove. And then Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 says that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, led Jesus where? Not to the synagogue, not to the cross, not to the, not, not to the ascension to heaven. He led, the Holy Spirit led Jesus to the wilderness to be tested by the devil. But I remind you, the test is not for your punishment. It's for the devil's punishment. Say that again. The test is not for your punishment. It's for the devil's punishment. This is when God sends you in a test. Now, there are tests and trials that come just as a result of being in the world. And we know as believers, we can conquer and overcome those that Satan cannot bring anything against us that will prosper. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. If it's not of God, you kick it out. If it's not of God, you remove it. If it's not of God, you overcome it. But when it's a test and trial that God is inviting you into, you recognize God has invited me into this situation to prove what he's put inside of me. And he's given you a capacity based upon what you've already proven to him. If you are wondering why you haven't been given more responsibility, if you haven't, if you're wondering why you're not being, you haven't been given more opportunities, come on, take inventory of what you're doing with what you already have. Because what you do with what you have proves to him, can I handle more or do I need to stay where I'm at? As we grow, as we mature, guess what's going to happen? More demand's going to be placed on you. I've got an 11-year-old and I've got a two-year-old. Guess what? They have different demands. And I'll give an assignment to Camden and Camden will say, well, why doesn't Austin have to? Well, he's two. He can't. He hasn't reached the maturity and the capacity. Come on. Don't look around at other mature believers and wonder, well, how come I haven't been given that? And don't look at more immature and say, well, why do they get off with that? God's only testing you with where you're at based upon what you have proven to him. He doesn't predetermine these. He doesn't say, ah, eeny, meeny, miny, mo, five, two, one. He says, this one's proven to me. He's, he can handle the capacity of five. This one's proven to me. He can handle the capacity of two. 
And this one's proven to me that he can handle the capacity of one. And at any point, the one with five can stall out and say, I don't want, I don't want grow, I won't grow any further. I don't want to go any further. And the one continue to increase to the two, continue to increase to the four, continue to increase to the eight, continue to double. At, at, at any point, at the end of the day, it's up to us what we're proven to him. God is not in the business of restraining his people. I can tell you that right now. God is not in the business of restricting you, keeping you small, keeping you. Uh, he wants to grow you, advance you, and develop you as fast as you will allow him. Period. And so we recognize that it's the capacity that we've already proven profitable with and faithful with that determines what the master can give us. Verse 16 says, the servant who received five bags of silver began to invest the money and earned five more. The servant with two bags of silver also went to work and earned two more. Notice right here in verse verses 16 and 17, something else we understand is what was given to us has the potential to be grown, to be developed, to be increased. So we understand what I've been given, I've proven to the master I can handle that. But now what I've been given, he's expecting me to increase it. He's expecting me to do more and return more back to him than what he gave me. So it's not just the capacity to handle and maintain, but it's the capacity to take the risk and invest it and develop it and increase it. So whatever you have in your hand today, he's not looking for you just to simply manage it, don't lose it, keep it, as we're going to learn in this parable. And many of you already know where this story goes. But it's the ability to take what I've put in your hands and return back to me more than what I originally gave you. The next verse tells us that the one with the one did not treat his talent or his uh, uh, measure the same way that the one with the five and the one with the two did. The servant who received the one bag of silver in verse 18 dug a hole in the ground and hid the master's money. So we've got three different servants, three different measures. Two of them do identically. They take what was given, which tells us this, that the capacity for investment and the capacity to return a larger investment wasn't based upon what the master gave you. You don't get to go to God and say, well, you gave that person this gift. That's why they've increased it. You only gave me this gift. So I've just been having to just keep it at the level that you gave it to me. We don't get to look across the aisle. We don't get to point at others that have different gifts that we think, because I'll tell you right now, you know, we, we, you know, it's time that we start learning to measure success the way God measures success. It's time that we start measuring success by God's measuring stick rather than man's measuring stick. 
Because man has this idea, if you're on this platform, if you're out in front of people, if you have this measure of influence, then, then you must have this great gift. But if you're back in a classroom or if you're serving at a door, you're in a parking lot, and then you know, get outside of the local church just in the gifts and the abilities that the Lord has given you. Regardless of what you think or how it measures to man, the only thing that God is determining success by is simply obedience. At the end of the day, that's what it comes down to. Will you obey me? Will you be obedient? Will you step out when I ask you to step out? Will you speak when I ask? Because there could be a CEO of a company that refuses to obey God and speak what he says. But then you could have a team leader in a department of five people that's willing to be obedient and do it. And which one was more obedient? The CEO in the top of the skyscraper or the team leader at the restaurant, the team leader at the grocery store with, with, with five people around them? It's not the measure of success that man measures by. If we're not careful, we'll measure by the wrong measuring stick. We'll measure by the wrong things. When God's saying, I'm asking you to be faithful and obedient, regardless of what you think it looks like or how you think it measures up to one another. But this servant took his one, dug a hole, and hid it. Verse 19 says, after a long time, their master returned from his trip and called them to give an account of how they had used his money. We must understand that we will. This is not an if scenario. This is a when scenario. You will give account. Now, there are two different responses to that. This is the judgment day we all think of. And the judgment day that most believers have in mind is not the judgment day that God has in mind. Typically, when we think of judgment day, standing before Jesus, we think of being told everything we've ever done wrong. That's most Christians, probably 90% of Christians, that's their perspective. When I stand before Jesus and give account of everything I've done wrong. Well, why wouldn't we give account of everything we did right? Because in the first account, verse 20 says, the servant to whom he entrusted the five bags of silver, came forward with five more and said, Master, you gave me five bags to invest. I have earned five more. Verse 21 says the master was full of praise. Does that sound like the judgment day most Christians believe we're going we're gonna to have one day? No. We, th- we picture a Jesus that's angry. We picture a Jesus that's ready to, come on now. All we are simply doing is giving account of what we did with what he gave us. I gave you five. What did you do with it? Because this servant handled it according to the capacity 
He didn't diminish it. He didn't devalue it. He didn't say, well, you know, I'll do with it as I please. He was obedient. He was responsible. He was faithful. We learn, and we're going to see that word two times in his admonishment to him. You were faithful with little. He says, uh, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling. Two times he says you were faithful. Two times he says you were faithful. So we recognize that this judgment day idea, this giving account idea, this standing before the Lord is not him spilling out all your sins. We forget the verse where he says that if we repent and, and he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, he wipes them as far as the east is from the west. You're asking him to pick up something that he's already forgotten. You're bringing back up something to him that he's already removed out of his thought. Come on. No, we, if we mess up, if we blow it, he's faithful and just to forgive us. We come to him, we repent, we ask for forgiveness. Very simple deal. So this now is not about coming and being told everything I ever did wrong. This is about understanding that I was given capacity. I was given potential. I was given ability. I was given responsibility. And how am I returning that back to the master? Not the extraordinary, not the sensational, not the big, large conference, not the uh, overseeing 1,500 people, not running the big machine, but just doing the daily grind, the the day-to-day response. How am I honoring the Lord with this time, with this talent, with this treasure, with my influence, with, with my capacities, with my abilities. This isn't about, you know, extroverts get, you know, really good combinations and introverts don't. God has gifted you with something to bring back to him in return. It's the disciplined lifestyle. It's the discipled lifestyle that he can say, well done, good and faithful servant. We recognize in verse 22, the servant who had received the two came forward, said, master, you gave me two bags of silver to invest and I've earned two four. Verse 23 says, the master said, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been handling, you have been faithful in handling this small amount So now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. Can can we just walk out of here today just knowing that judgment day is a day of celebration? It's a day of honoring the Lord with what we did, with what he gave us. Recognize that, man, I, I may have missed it. I may have blown it in some places. But, but man, when, when I realized what I was responsible for, when I, was, when I realized what the capacity was, the potential of what he gave me was, when, when, I, when I ran with that wholeheartedly and honored that, I made a return on the investment. I yielded fruit for the kingdom of God. And you know what? It may not have measured up to man. It may not have looked like success to man. It may not look like it was that great to man, but I'm not doing this for man. We, we live in a world today that is full of trying to please and appease 
man. There's a fear of man that is, that is creeping into society today. I, I would probably go ahead and say it's full on crept into society today. We care way too much what people think. We live way too much for the validation of man. We, we live way too much by what do men think and what are they going to say and are they going to like it and are they going to put a thumbs up or a thumbs down? They're going to put a smiley face or a heart on it rather than saying, Lord, what does this look like to you? We've got we've to get these priorities back in alignment. Who am I really living to please? But notice both of these, the one with the five returning 10, the one with the two returning four, both get the same response. Let's celebrate. Enter the joy of, of your Lord is what the New King James reads. That the Lord gets joy out of you being responsible and faithful with what he's given to you. He gets joy out of that. It's a celebration to him. It's party time. Judgment day is a great day. I think it was uh, Pastor Roddy Schaefer during Kingdom Rise where, where he likened it to a reward show, right? Where you have, Come receive your prize. Come see what you've earned. Come see what you've gained. And look, and the response was this. This is what I love about this. This is what I love. The response was, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount. So now I will give you many more, what? Responsibilities. The reward of the mature is responsibility. By proving to God that you can handle the capacity that he gave you, increase it and develop it according to its potential, You just went from being a servant to a ruler. The New King James reads that they, uh, well done, good and faithful servant. Now I will make you ruler over many things. The master wasn't just trying to turn five into 10. He wasn't just trying to turn two into four. He's trying to turn servants into masters. He's trying to develop you. He's not just interested in your gift. He's interested in you. He's not just interested in your ability. He's interested in you, developing you, increasing you, increasing your capacity. Why? Because now I can give you more responsibility because now you can take the 10 and now you've shown, proven to me, you can handle the 10 and turn it into 20. Take the four, turn it into eight. It's a, it's a rule of profitability. It's a rule of return. It's not a rule of, well, I, you know, thank you for bringing me 10 that, you, you know, you should have returned this. You should have done. No, he's saying what I gave you, the measure I gave you is the measure that it'll come back. It's the measure that you'll prove that you will handle and be obedient and be faithful with what I gave you. How are we being faithful with what we've been given? And that includes the tests and the trials. Did you know that you can be faithful with the test? Do you know you can be proven faithful with the test? And I'll remind you, don't let the miracle 
allow you to confuse what success looks like. Because we've seen in the word of God, and I've seen it in other people's lives too, that again, what man would call successful, water coming out of a rock, God called disobedience and rebellion and said, you're not going to enter the promised land. I've seen ministers do it. They've got large churches, large attendance. They've got the budgets every every pastor would want to have. They've got these large platforms, lots of influence, but their lives reek of rebellion. They're not answering the call that God gave them. They're just simply following formulas and methods and plans that can bring increase. And the water's flowing out of the rock and everyone's standing around ooing and aahing and God's in heaven saying, nope, it's not what I called you to do. I had to go look these quotes up because you've, you've heard me give them to you before, but I had to look them up right here before service. The greatest tragedy in life is not death, but a life without purpose. The greatest tragedy in life is not death, but a life without purpose. The greatest mistake in life is to be busy, but not effective. The greatest mistake in life is to be consumed with busyness. Man, we love busyness today. Everybody's busy. Even if we're not busy, we tell people we're busy, right? Because it's good to be busy. Busy means you're doing something. We, We answered that question uh, you know, how are you doing, man? Just things are busy, just wide open, got so much going on. We really answer that question so the person across the aisle will think we're doing stuff. Come on, we're being successful. We think busyness is success. But the greatest mistake in life is to be busy, but not effective. But this is the one I wanted to get to. The greatest failure in life is to be successful, in the wrong assignment. The greatest failure in life is being successful in the wrong assignment. I believe God's calling his church in these last days to be successful in the right assignment. You know, the issue with that is you you don't really know on the outside You know, because your spirit will bear witness with the Holy Spirit, with the spirit of God, whether you're following his command and whether you're following the assignment he gave you, but you can, you can confuse and you can deceive many. I mean, didn't, didn't uh, Jesus say in Matthew chapter seven, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons, heal the sick? We used your name. And he'll say what? Depart from me. I, man, that is sobering, guys. That is so sobering that I could be uh, even portraying a miraculous lifestyle, a miraculous ministry. I could be having these things take place in my life and then get to the end. And he says, who are you? That I could have lived this entire life down here successful in the wrong assignment. I'm telling you guys, nothing trumps obedience. Nothing. 
before, but right, right before leading up to uh, Kingdom Rise, I ministered for about three or four weeks on a faith that obeys. That the greatest work and the greatest exercise of our faith is to simply obey God at his word. That's what faith is in its simplest form, is simply taking God at his word and living with the conviction deep enough within your heart that you put action to what you say and what you believe. The greatest exercise of your faith will not be the, the sick uh, being healed and the dead being raised and the demons being cast. The greatest exercise of your faith will to hear the word of, will be to hear the word of God and then do it and live it and apply it in your life. Obey it. Because if he can look at a man that just got water to come out of a rock and say, you will not enter my promised land, then what else could he be saying to us? in spite of the signs and the wonders. In spite of all the things that man deems successful. I do not want to be successful in the wrong assignment. I don't want to be deemed successful by man and rebellious by God. I don't want to live that life. To be successful in the wrong assignment. No. In verse 24, the servant with the one bag came and said, Master, I knew you were a harsh man. Notice that this is the same man that just said, let's celebrate together. It's the same man that said, enter the joy of the Lord. It's the same man that just said, it, 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 it is my complete pleasure to receive what you have returned back to me. The same man by a different person is identified as a harsh man. I think it's the Amplified reads a, a hard and severe man. Are we talking about the same Lord? Have you ever noticed that? That, 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 that we, we can all have these different viewpoints, and these different perspectives of God, and one can see them as a hard, severe, judgmental, waiting to, to strike you down at any moment, while the other one uh, views him as just this loving, uh, you know, Lord, this loving God that lets you do whatever, and he's somewhere in the middle, right? How do we end up with that? I'll tell you what, the best way to get the perfect perspective of who God is, is to obey him at his word. Not out of performance. Not out of a desire to appease and please him because you already measure up to God. Hello, through Christ, we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So I'm not performing and obeying, but when his, if, if I see God and his word are one and the same. And if I continue to break down on his word and I continue to disrespect and devalue and dishonor his word, guess what? Eventually I'm going to end up with an incorrect view of who God is. Why do we have two men that said that, that received the joy of their Lord and now I've got one that views him as a harsh and severe man. I knew you were a harsh man, harvesting crops you didn't plant, gathering crops you didn't cultivate. I was afraid. Fear will always cost you faithfulness. 
Fear will always cost you faithfulness. I was afraid I would lose your money. So I hid it in the earth. And then he says, look, here is your money back. In an attempt to to, to salvage any ability of honoring the master, he says, at least I didn't lose it. Now, I, I I would submit to you that the other two men were afraid. They were afraid of not returning to the master its full capacity and full potential of what he gave them. A healthy fear of God. A health, you've heard of the fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord is not being afraid of God. It's being afraid to do anything that would be out of line of his will and out of line of his word and that would ultimately separate me from him. That's a fear of the Lord. This is an incorrect fear. And because of that fear, he what? He mishandles the investment. He mishandles what was given. He believed him to be a harsh and severe man. Well, what led to that perspective? Disobedience. What led to the perspective that he's going to do something with them if he doesn't get it right, if he doesn't measure up, if he doesn't, because he disobeyed the word of the king. Disobeyed the word of his master. Disobeyed what he knew his master's expectations would be. So this is how the master responds. The master replied, you wicked and lazy servant. I mean, honestly, this man's getting the very thing he was afraid of. He believed him to be a harsh and severe And now he's getting harsh and severe. Wicked and lazy servant. If you knew I harvested crops I didn't plant and gathered crops I didn't cultivate, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. He ordered that the money be taken from the servant and give it to the one with the 10 bags of silver. To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given and they will have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. Verse 30 is the harshest of all responses. He says, now throw this useless servant into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's the judgment day most people have in mind. That's the thought that most people have in mind when I go before the king. I'm going to be told everything i done wrong. I'm going to be reminded of every place that I missed it. And ultimately, I'm going to be separated forever. Which judgment day are you going to have? The enter the joy of your Lord, let's celebrate. By recognizing the value and the worth of what he's given you. You know, as pastors, my wife and I, you know, the, the greatest uh Prayer, the greatest goal that we have in pastoring a church and shepherding a church like this is seeing gifts 
developed and increased. And many times we do see the opposite. Many times we see people sit on gifts. Many times we see people sit on abilities that we're trying to make a demand for and trying to make a pull on and trying to put them in a place where they can just, that the, that the gift will be fostered and developed. Sometimes we see people trying to produce a gift too soon. Before it's time. You know, premature births can be just as dangerous as staying in the womb too long. Producing something before it's time in an environment where it's supposed to remain in the womb and still get nutrients and still get certain care and still be taken. And so sometimes we have to to come around people and say, it's not the time yet. But most of the time it's, hey, we it's been done past time. You need to be in labor by now. You need to be birthing this thing now. You need to be producing this thing. You need to be naming this thing. Have you bought the furniture yet? Have you painted the room yet? Have you gotten the toys and the clothing for? Like we're trying to get people to understand you're pregnant with vision. You're pregnant with purpose. You're pregnant with destiny. And it's time to usher this thing on forth. Because that's what the master's doing. I've placed something inside of you. And it's developing, it's working, it's increasing, it's maturing. And when the time comes, I'm going to have you stand before me and give account. And it's my absolute joy to hear what you did with what I gave you. It's my absolute honor and privilege to have you give account of the increase and what you did with that test, with that trial, with that gift, with that talent, with that treasure. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2 says, y'all doing okay? I keep going either way, but sometimes I just like to ask and find out. (laughs) 1 Corinthians 4, verse 2, moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. I've had people ask me, you know, uh, uh, 11 years going on, 12 years now pastoring, over 15 years now in in full-time ministry. That's not a long time by any means. Still so far to go and so much to learn. But you get some years under your belt and, and you get people asking you, how did you get here? How did you do this? I just sat down with a young man in my office just this past week just at a crossroads in his life. Doesn't even attend our church, part of another ministry, but just a a guy that I know and just wanting to to pick my brain on some things and, and, you know, just at a a place, I I believe God's calling me to do this, but, you know, this hasn't opened up and that hasn't opened up. And, And I just, you know, he's just asking, you know, what, what does it take? What, what is God? I, I just, I want to be pleasing to him. I want to live my life. I don't care what I do. I don't care who sees it. I don't care where I go. I don't care what happens, but I just feel like there's something there that I'm not meeting. And I, I, I just said, at the end of the day, this is what the Lord's looking for. Period. Faithfulness. Faithfulness. This word faithful here in the Greek, it means this. Reliable trustworthy, dependable, true, and unfailing. Reliable, 
trustworthy, dependable, true, and unfailing. I just told him, I said, look, the only reason I'm where I'm at today is faithfulness. There's no self-promotion. I didn't go to some conference and get 10 steps to growing a church. There's no strategies. There's no methods. There's uh, outside of what God has called us to do and assigned us to do. But what I see happening in the world today, and especially with our young people, you see it too. We look for every way possible to shortcut faithfulness. We look for every way possible to cut corners. What's going to get me there faster? What's going to get me there quicker? And many of them out of, out of maybe good-hearted ambitions. They start out good-hearted. Good-hearted, I want to reach more people. I want to, I want to pastor more people. I want to have a greater influence. I want to get more people saved and born again. But if we're not careful, good ambitions can become selfish ambitions. They become selfish ambitions when we aren't listening to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords as to where would you have me be? Because Joseph ended up in a pit and a prison before he got to the palace. Moses was wandering around in a wilderness, lost, didn't even know what to do with his life, thought he was done before he brought uh, Israelites out of Egypt and into the, uh, into the wilderness and ultimately compromised his own capacity to get them into the promised land. David, anointed with the oil dripping off his beard, went straight back to the pasture taking care of sheep. Then he ended up on the run for 13 years from the very king he was told he would replace. It's these seasons, it's these opportunities, it's these moments that we see a generation becoming very resistant of. We want the platform. We want the pedestal. We want the promotion, the notoriety, the influence. But are we taking the time for God to do the work in us to allow us to prove I can go from servant to master? To allow us a season to prove I'm committed to the discipline process. I mean, when we were starting our church, the statistic 11, 12 years ago when we were starting the church was the average lifespan of a new church plant was 36 months. 36 months, three years. I didn't even know what I was doing in three years. I don't even feel like we got off the tracks until like twice that long, six years. You can't learn anything about yourself in three years, especially in ministry. That's hardly enough time to see God's faithfulness work. And I believe things are going to happen quicker and, and things are going to be put into motion faster. But I'm just telling you, there's, there, there's a, a kingdom principle of faithfulness that God simply will not override for the, for the, even for the sake of doing something faster and growing something quicker. But if it compromises your soul and compromises your spirit and compromises your sanity and your identity and your purpose, he will not do it. There's so much work he's trying to, to, to just merely do in us before he can work through us. You got to be committed to this process. In the 
Amplified, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 2 reads, Moreover, it is essentially required of stewards that a man should be found faithful, proving himself worthy of trust, trustworthy, reliable. It's kind of that whole question, if you worked for you, what kind of employee would you be? Isn't it crazy? Sometimes we have these expectations of other people, but we don't have these expectations of ourselves. I expect them to call me when they said they're going to call me, show up, but are we producing that in our own lives? Are we reliable, dependable, trustworthy, committed? If I went to your boss, would they say that about you? Come on. If I went to the master himself, this is a good word. It's better than you're shouting, but that's okay. The greatest path to promotion is faithfulness. The greatest path to promotion is faithfulness. The word found in that passage, it's required in stewards that one be found faithful. I thought this was really interesting. The word found means this, to discover after careful observance. You know what that tells me? That this kind of faithfulness is rare. It's got to be sought for, searched after. You got to look intently. Where's the faithful? Where's the faithful? Okay, there's one right there. Okay, where's the, I'm going to look it through, look it through, look it through. Okay, another faithful. We're a rare breed. The faithful are a rare breed. The ones that will fully answer the call of God when he speaks, no question, no doubting, no conversations, no going back and forth, just fully ready and able to answer the call when he gives it. And staying committed to the process, not putting God on a timeline. That's the first thing I had to learn when I moved from Texas to, to Florida. I had to get rid of my, I learned in about eight months, there's no timeline on this thing. Number one, I found that's about as long as it took me to find out I'm a lot further off than I thought I was. We're all further off than we think we are. You just want to be honest. There's more development. There's more increase. There's more maturing. I can do better with this. I can handle that more. He, he, he gave me two. I only brought back three. I need to bring back four. There, there's, there's increase that can happen. Always be teachable. Always be coachable. Always let the word of God get into your heart and work and move and do what it's called to do. It's the greatest way to grow. It's the greatest way to develop. But once I realized I got a lot more work to do than I thought, I, I quickly realized I can't put a timeline on this. I can't have an idea, well, I'll do this for five years and I'll go over here for two years and I'll sit under the, you know, many are the ways in a man's heart. Many are the plans in a man's heart. And that's okay. It's good for you to have plans. You just have to recognize your plan can't ever override God's purpose. If God has to bow to your plan, you're not going to achieve his purpose. It won't work. 
He wants you to be a planner. He wants you to put things in motion. He wants you to think outside the box. He wants you to think bigger than what you're currently doing. But at the end of the day, I submit my plan to his purpose. I submit my plan to his will. I submit my plan to, Lord, what do you want me to do? Here's all the different options I have. Here's the different ways I could go. Here's how long this may take. But what do you want to do? Knowing the will of God and the plan of God is the best thing for your life. It's the best place to be. That doesn't mean it's all mapped out in front of me. I've got one step at a time. You realize he's only responsible to give you your daily bread. One day at a time. Well, God, what's going to happen tomorrow? Do you have enough for today? Yes, Lord. Okay, that's all you need. When you get up tomorrow, there'll be new manna on the ground and it'll sustain you for that day. And there'll be new manna the next day and there'll be new manna the next day. And then before you know it, you've taken this path and this is the funny part. You get to the end and you look back and said, I would have never done it that way. (laughs) In fact, God, if you had shown me that whole path, I would have thought it was the devil and I wouldn't have taken it in the first place. (laughs) Nope. There's no way that could be God to put me in front of that person, to minister to those people, to come in line with that, to take on this. Oh, man, God knows how. God knows how to do a work in you so that he can do a work through you. You got to do a work in the servant before you can do a work through the master. And he worked on the servant so that one day I can work through the master. Now you're going to be a ruler. You're going to be responsible for much more. This was just, this was just the little, and you thought it was the big test, right? You thought this was the big thing. Like, oh man, this is it. And God's saying, ah, that's small stuff. I've got so much more in store for you. I've got bigger things. Oh man, you have no idea what you're going to touch. You have no idea the influence. You have no idea the notoriety. You have no idea the, what I'm going to put on you. You thought that was big. You just wait. Go to 1 Samuel 15. Do this real quick. Faithfulness. Faithfulness. It's not one of the catchy words we throw around in church. It's not one of the hype words. Who wants to be faithful to God? I don't have a lot of people running around on that one. Who wants a miracle? Who wants a hundredfold return? You know, I, I know the, the charismatic Pentecostal trigger words. Who wants to be baptized in fire? Woo, yeah, pastor. Who wants to be faithful? Ooh, ooh. Give me fire. I need more fire. Oh, we need to be faithful. Give you a little context here. God has allowed the Israelites against his own judgment and against his own wishes to have a king. He said, we want a king. We want a king. We want a king like all the other nations. And God says, okay, I'll give you your king. But your king's going to run you in the ground. Your king's going to make slaves of your your, your wives and your daughters and your your children. They're going to rule by their hand. They're going to put you under their thumb. They're not going to remain in line with me. But you want your king, I'll give you your king. The first king comes out, King Saul, starts off great. Great start. Picked by the people. Had Had man's approval. 
Man's pleased. He's a head and shoulders above everybody else. He looks the part, right? Got it all going on from a wealthy family. That's the guy. Man's like, yes, we got our king. Well, it didn't take King Saul very long to start misaligning with the authority of heaven. Remember what we say about authority. You can't remain in authority if you don't remain under authority. He quickly found out if you don't remain submitted to the God of heaven, you won't remain in charge of the earth. The earth is the, the, earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Came out of submission. And so verse, uh, 1 Samuel 15, verse 1, God sends King Saul on a test. Remember what we said about tests? This is Saul's opportunity to advance. This is Saul's opportunity to prove I've got it. I learned the lesson in the past season. I passed this test and I can advance and move on. And verse one says, Samuel, the prophet told Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people Israel, now listen. The first thing I want us to notice here in verse one is anointing makes you accountable. The Lord sent me to anoint you. Now listen. If you're anointed by default, you're accountable. I'm accountable for what I'm anointed for. If he anointed me to go into the wilderness to pass the test of being tempted by the devil, then guess what? I'm going to be accountable for responding in like, man, like manner. If he's sending me into this, this wilderness season, I'm anointed. If he's sending me to, to take this test, I'm anointed. If he's sending me to lay, lay hands on the sick, I'm anointed. If I, it, I am anointed, but the anointing now makes me accountable. Remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter four, for the spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me. To what? Heal the brokenhearted, set at liberty the captives, restore sight to the blind, to proclaim those acceptable year of the Lord, right? So what? Jesus is saying, this is what I'm living accountable for. I'm not accountable for pleasing man. I'm not accountable for going where they want me to go, saying what they want me to say, doing what they want me. That's what I'm accountable for. That's what I've been anointed for. That's what I'm going to be accountable for. This is what I'm going to have to stand before my father and say, this is why you sent me. And that's why in the, in the garden, he said, not my will, but your will. Why? I'm anointed not to do my will. I'm anointed to do his will. Here's the tricky part. The anointing will work even if you choose your will. Ask Samson. The anointing worked out of selfish ambition. He got those pillars to fall at the very end. He got all his strength back in rebellion. Moses got water out of the rock in rebellion. I keep coming back to this point because we are measuring success by the wrong things. And we're going to stand accountable. I didn't anoint you to grumble and complain. Samson, I didn't anoint you to deceive and to trick and do whatever you wanted to do. 
And even though the miracles still show, showed forth. Come on. Says the anointing is on you as king over his people. Now listen to the words of the Lord. Verse two. This is what the Lord of armies says. I witnessed what the Amalekites did to the Israelites when they opposed them along the way as they were coming out of Egypt. Now go and attack the Amalekites and completely destroy everything they have. This sounds like a test. This sounds like a battle. There's a fight. But he's promised victory. Remember, God isn't sending King Saul into the the battle with the Amalekites for his punishment. He's sending them into the battle with the Amalekites for their punishment because of what they did to his people in the wilderness. God remembers. You think you have a revenge issue. (laughs) God has a revenge. And his memory is much better than ours. He might be calling you to beat up on some things that your grandfather and great-grandfather and great-great-grandfather weren't willing to defeat. That's how good God's memory is. And so you've been sent in not to be defeated, but to issue defeat, come on, on the enemy. This is a different perspective. Do not spare them. Kill men and women, infants, nursing babies, oxen and sheep, camels and donkeys. Then Saul summoned the troops and counted them. And so he goes into battle. But we get on down to verse um, 7. And Saul struck down the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur is next to Egypt. He captured King Agag of Amalek alive, but he completely destroyed all the rest of the people with the sword. Saul and the troops spared Agag and the best of the sheep, goats, cattle, and choice animals, as well as the young rams and the best of everything else. They were not willing to destroy them, but they did destroy all the worthless and unwanted things. They were unwilling Guys, this wasn't a matter of what Saul couldn't do. It was a matter of what he wouldn't do. At the end of the day, the one with the five, the one with the two, the one with the one, it's a willingness or unwillingness issue. It's not not capacity. It's not ability. You can't stand before the Lord one day and say, well, I just wasn't able. I tried my hardest. He's going to say, no, 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 no. I I anointed you. The anointing breaks the yoke. You could, if you would. But we think we're going to stand before Jesus one day and say, well, I would have if I could have. He's going to look right back and he's going to say, You could have, if you would have. If you were willing, you would have seen what I could do through you. Because that's what anointing is. Anointing is supernatural ability for a supernatural assignment. That's literally what anointing is. He reminded him in the very first verse, I'm sending you into a battle. I'm sending you into a test. But hey, remember, you're anointed with a supernatural ability 
to complete a supernatural assignment. I'm not asking you to do it in your ability. I'm not asking you to do it in, in your own uh, uh, capacity. There's many times, even at the more and more as this church grows, I have to remind myself, I'm anointed. I'm anointed. I'm an, the, the, the deeper you get into the things of God, the more uncomfortable you get. I had somebody tell me uh, one time, you know, just talking about my speaking and how well the word comes forth. And man, you just must love speaking. And I said, I, you, meet me in the foyer. That's the, I'm just going to be vulnerable and open. That's the hardest time for me is small talk, <laughs> conversation. I am an introvert by nature. And I know you're all, you're like, whoa, no way. This is anointing, period. It is not me. I do not want to be up here without the anointing. It's anointing to be able to teach the word. It's the anointing to be able to deliver the word. And just as I have to use the anointing, so do you. Stop refusing to go into places that he's anointed you to go into. And then when you get there, use the anointing. Draw on the anointing. Quit talking about I can't. I won't. I don't have enough. I never have. I don't think I can. Man, you got to get that verbiage out of your mouth. Silver and gold, I have none. But what I do have, I give unto you. Start giving people what you do have and stop talking about what you don't. Amen. So, it says he was unwilling in verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I made Saul king for he has turned away from following me and has not carried out my instructions. Obedience. Faithfulness. Verse 22, we'll just jump on down here. Worship team, y'all can start making your way here. As Samuel said, does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention, I love that, is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion, there it is, is like the sin of divination. Defiance is like wickedness and idolatry. There's that harsh, severe master that the one servant with the one bag of silver had. That's, that's, not, that's not who God is. But it's a response to our disobedience that it shifts our perspective of who God is and what he wants to do. God is way more merciful than we give him credit for. Way more long-suffering. I think it was Pastor Earl I heard say one time, if sin paid out immediately, we would all do it less. <laughs> the wages of sin is, if it happened instantly, Maybe we'd have a different response. No, he's merciful. Why? I'm giving you another opportunity. Another opportunity. Mercy isn't excusing. 
Mercy is delaying. Because I don't want to see you depart from me. I never knew you. I don't want to see you cast out into outer darkness, weeping and gnashing. I don't want to see. He, 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 he desires that all come to repentance. But he's getting a response, King Saul, much like the servant with the one bag. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord. See, he he doesn't even say because you rejected me. He's identifying himself in line with his word. You reject my word, you rejected me. You disobey my word, you're disobeying me. You obey my word, you're obeying me. You adhere to my word, you're adhering to me. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Saul answered Samuel, I have sinned. I've transgressed the Lord's command and your words. It took him 24 verses to figure that out, by the way. Because I was afraid of the people, I obeyed them. See, he got in by the people's desire, so he had to stay in by the people's desire. He was motivated by the wrong intentions in the first place. Whatever gets you in is what you'll have to do to stay there. Whatever you compromise to get it, you'll have to continue to compromise to keep it. Samuel replied to Saul, I will not return with you, verse 26, because you rejected the word of the Lord. The Lord has rejected you from being king. When Samuel turned to go, Saul grabbed the corner of his robe and it tore. Samuel responds, the Lord has torn the kingship of Israel away from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. We've said it the last several weeks, but whatever price you pay in disobedience far outweighs whatever, let's get that right. The whatever price you pay in obedience is nothing compared to what you'll pay in disobedience. Pastor Mark, it's, it's going to cost me. I know. The one with the five had to risk the five to get the 10. The one with the two, it cost them the two to get the four. But that price was nothing compared to what the one with the one ultimately ended up paying by burying it, hiding it, holding on to it, playing safe. The times of playing it safe in the church, long gone. He's looking for a church that will honor his word above man's approval. Looking for a church that will honor his commands above what the world thinks. He's looking for a church that will adhere to his ways even above your own desires. 
Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast today. We trust you received a word from God. If you enjoyed this teaching, be sure to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes. By subscribing, you'll be sure to receive a new message every week as soon as they are made available. And if you'd like to learn more about Anchor Faith Church, you can stop by our website at anchorfaithvaldosta.com. There you'll find our locations and service times, ministries that are available for you and your family. You can even give financially in support of the ministry. Thank you again for listening, and we look forward to seeing you next time right here on the Anchor Faith Church podcast.